Thanks for downloading this Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. For more information on the centre, go to ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash chomi. In this episode, a recording from the medical training, student experience and the transmission of knowledge circa 1800 to 2014 symposium, which took place in the UCD Humanities Institute in October 2014. The symposium was organised by Laura Kelly of University College Dublin and was generously supported by the Irish Research Council and the Wellcome Trust. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording from Panel 3, Educational Tools and Spaces. The paper, Botanic Gardens as Spaces and Places of Medical Teaching, the example of the Glasgow and Edinburgh Botanic Gardens, was given by Claire Hickman of King's College, London. Uh, yeah, the long 18th century. So my first thing is, um, I am going to go back a bit in time, but I think it will resonate quite strongly with a lot of the themes um, that have been cropping up over the last sort of day and a bit. Um, and one of the reasons, actually, is the examples of Edinburgh and Glasgow, um, the archival resources have been much better in Edinburgh, and that happens to be an earlier time period than Glasgow. So this is partly based on my primary source research so far, although if anyone knows any more about the Glasgow Botanic Exam- um, Botanic Garden at the early point um, and where some of those sources might be found I'd love to hear from you uh, Marguerite might have some ideas about this I think the other thing I want to mention is I talk about spaces and places but I've been thinking about this a bit more especially on my walk in this morning and um, a lot of people look at Botanic Gardens I think like Richard Drayton with Nature's Government and David Livingstone with the, the garden as a laboratory kind of idea they're thinking about them as this kind of imaginative space really that can capture all these bigger themes but when you start looking at them as places they have all kinds of individual things going on and lots of different levels of how they work so it's quite hard to see them as like one type of space I think so Fenola O'Kane who said this morning her work on the um, Dublin Botanic Garden and Emma Sperry's book on um, Utopia's Garden which is all about the King's Cabinet in Paris they're kind of more based on actual places and I think that tells a different kind of story. Um, so I've got some research questions. But one thing I'm particularly interested in is how the design relates to the function of the space. Um, and I think one of the things that isn't looked at enough is how those two things work together. Um, I'm also trying to think about who accesses the gardens, because that's actually not as obvious as it necessarily seems, um, and how it was used for teaching. So that's another element that hasn't really been thought about perhaps enough. So I thought I would do some quick, let's look at some design kind of of gardens. And the line's always a good place to start. And it's very like rectilinear beds. It's very ordered. It's kind of all about having those plants you would use in your medicines. Um, I met the Leiden um, Botanic Garden director in the summer. And he was saying that the teaching there of Padra and Pisa at the same time was very much, let's learn about this plant how you would use it in kind of a medical setting, where it would grow, and then be tested on that. So you would just kind of learn about an individual plant. And I think by the time we get around the 18th century, that's changed a lot, and the shape of the gardens kind of reflect that. Um, but this is kind of interesting in terms of comparative anatomy and how it fits into other ideas of thinking about material culture and teaching um, and the relationship with the garden to other bits um, of medical practice. Um, and the Edinburgh Physic Garden, so I think Physic Gardens and Botanic Gardens are hazily different things, um, but there's definitely a point where they kind of swap over. And it doesn't say on any of the stuff which bit is the Botanic Garden, but I'm going to go with this bit here, the Physic Garden, because it's rectilinear beds again. So I think that shape tells us something. Um, 
Oh, yes, lightning in summer. So even when it gets expanded a bit under Bauhaus, it still has very much those kinds of beds, but there are now like greenhouses with exotic plants in, and they've recreated what the old bit looked like, so it gives you a sense of how that works on the ground. And even someone like Bauhaus, who's, you know, a massive figure in 18th century medicine, he can't get enough space to grow all the plants he needs, so he grows them on his country estate and then ships them in for teaching, which means there's a team of gardeners there. I think the gardener is one of these other invisible people like the porter um, and people doing the animal specimens that we kind of hear about. And actually the gardener becomes incredibly important in the botanic gardens. So somehow they're getting specimens in. So kind of where the teaching material is located and what garden it's in isn't necessarily the garden you expect it to be either. So I'm quite interested in where things are actually being grown. Um, the Oxford Botanic Garden is quite interesting because it's not anywhere near a medical teaching faculty, given how early it is. Um, it hasn't really got a building for teaching that goes with it either. I'm quite, it's out on a limb a bit, which could be about the college system at Oxford, I'm not sure. But this one, although it's got very organised rates many beds, it's also got quite fancy parterres, which are you know, quite trendy in the 17th century. So garden design trends also impact on it because they are kind of places of showing off your collection as well as, you know, teaching. Especially by the time you're bringing in more and more exotics. Um, and apparently Oxford was founded with a mission to promote the focus of learning and to glorify nature. And I think the glorifying nature might be quite interesting in that context. And the Chelsea Physic Garden, similarly, rectilinear beds, but also you're starting to get serpentine walks cut through, which will be your Batty Langley style of garden design, his lovely pattern books of how to do your parterre at home. Um, which brings me on to John Hope's Botanic Garden. And again, it's like, as Jenna was talking about with individuals, it's similarly individual collectors. So John Hope actually buys the land and then gets the university, rents it back off him. Um, it's also what, uh, I think it's Buffon does in Paris as well. So there's a precedent for buying the land to get the university buy it back from you. Um, so kind of their idea of what it is that they want to do is really important. This is less coming from the university in many ways and more coming from an individual who's got enough money to back themselves and is also bringing in a lot of sort of teaching money via students individually. So John Hope had studied medicine at Edinburgh, then he'd gone to Paris where he studied botany under de Gisseau at the Jardin de Rois, and I apologise for my appalling French accent to the French speakers in the audience. Um, and on his return, he actually takes his medical doctorate in Glasgow. No one's quite sure why he goes back to Glasgow and not Edinburgh. It could be to build up his network, it could be because Cullen's there, it could be um, because I think he marries his wife while he's there. So there could be all kinds of family connections. Um, but in 1760, under the patronage of Lord Bute, so Hope is brilliant at patronage. He's like works his way through the system. Um, he takes up the chair of botany and materia medica. And in 1761, he's commissioned by George III to be the king's botanist in Scotland and keeper of the physic garden at Holyrood Palace. So he has two gardens, one near the university and one that I showed you before at Holyrood. Um, by 1768, he's managed to shed the materia medica part, so Francis Home takes on that and just concentrates on botany, which is a massive shift, I think, in terms of where botanical teaching sits. Um, he's starting to push it out as a, a separate kind of thing. But it could also be, because he has enough students, and he has this garden which is quite different and quite specific to what he's doing. 
1763, so five years before he manages just to become a botanist, um, he petitions the Lord Commissioners um, of the Treasury, and he gets a grant of £1,000, and then asks for an extra 350 because there's never enough money for a botanic garden. Um, and he talks about the benefit which arises to every school of medicine from a complete botanic garden is great and apparent from the very great number of physicians and surgeons which have already gone from this university into the fleet, army, colonies and many other parts of His Majesty's dominions. Renders it an object is hope not unworthy of His Majesty's favour and protection. So it's very much part of that colonial thing. He's selling it on the colonial argument. Um, but he also does this at a point where Lord Bute is um, temporarily Prime Minister. It's a very short time period. And he manages to put his petition in when he's got friends. under. And every time he asks for extra money, it's when he's got a friend on the inside of government. Um, so his kind of patronage network is very important. So they opened the garden in 1767. And the reason I want to show you this is how different it looks to all the other examples I've just shown you. So the rectilinear beds are at the top, and that is the physic garden, that is the teaching garden um, for students. But there's kind of the winding paths, which are kind of picturesque. But this bit really interests me, because this looks like a plant to me. It looks like it's actually basing the design on the system of plants and how plants actually look. Because what he's interested in is how plants work. It's part of that bigger comparative anatomy. It's not just animals, it's also plants, animals, humans. Um, and I think the physical structure of the garden reflects his own sort of interest. Admittedly, no one else has picked up on this, so it could be just my head, but that, <laughs> that's what it says to me. Um, what else it tells us is about the importance of his patronage networks. So he actually names beds after various people that he corresponds with um, for seeds or who are particularly influential, or people in the past. So he's placing himself within a network of botanists, really. So... Um, John Ray is on there. And Reverend Hales, he, he, he kind of follow, he keeps doing Reverend Hales' experiments and taking them forwards with sapping plants and how plants um, have a circulatory system. Um, so he's kind of got people like that from the past. Actually, this is, I've, I've got to go back and look at this because Henry Nolte uses it in his book. And it's circa 1780, but I don't know if the beds were there before and this is a plan of kind of what, what they're named after. Because some of these people have died by 1780, would have been alive in 1763. Um, so I don't know how much of it is a memorial garden. Um, then we have the Flodder Gills and Pickhairs, who are very important in terms of botanical medical networks. Obviously Linnaeus, um, just so who's gone to visit the Jardin du Roi, um, Lord Butte, but also his gardener. His gardener has a bed named after him. And this is the importance of the gardener, because the gardener does brings all the things to... Um, Demonstrating stuff. Um, just another idea of networks, and Michael recognised a lot of this um, from his work on Alexander Hunter. Um, but we kind of, I've kind of sort of italicised some of the bigger names that you might recognise. Um, Dr. Hector of York, just for Mike. Um, Mr. Curtis, William Curtis has his own botanic garden in London. There's a subscription garden, which is a whole different kind of botanic garden. Um, Duchess of Portland, who's very influential in terms of getting um, money. The Hope's Botanic Garden, um, Earl of Butte, Joseph Banks, obviously. It's kind of a who's who of botany, power, um, interesting networks. So he sends them all these seeds. Um, I don't know much about asphaltine, apart from the fact it's one of the main ingredients in Worcestershire sauce. I learnt that doing this. But it's also quite taxonomical. I think this idea about how important taxonomy is is also reflected in this kind of network. You are placing yourself within a taxonomical structure. Um, this is the view of Leith Walk. Um, Edinburgh Botanic Garden are doing lots of work on this at the minute because this building, they've 
kind of saved and about to rebuild back in the Botanic Garden. Because the Botanic Garden moves a lot. This is the thing about Botanic Gardens, they also don't stay in the same place. So this is only actually at Leith Walk for quite a short period of time, and only really under John Hope. So it's very much his garden. Um, but that is kind of a central space for teaching. So the central building was used as a lecture room. Also had the house for the head gardener. So the head gardener is essentially physically placed within the garden. Um, and it has greenhouses either side. So you, your exotics are mainly in there. And the number of students increases quite a lot over John Hope's sort of superintendents. Um, and Jane Corrie, who's worked a lot on the um, Botanic Garden because of the um, restoration plans, um, says that towards the end of John Hope's sort of life, the lecture room was too small. So it was an elaborate twice-yearly procedure of moving the plants outside, putting the students um, in the greenhouses, and putting up and taking down a teacher pulpit, dissembling and reassembling the plant staging, and moving the necessary student benches around. So kind of the way the space is used also depends on your number of students, but it's definitely quite a hub um, of teaching. So even with this purpose-built space, it might not be big enough. Now, how is the space used? Um, this is um, a nice uh, little detail from that 1601 plan of Leiden. Um, and obviously there they're kind of pointing things out on the beds. There's kind of like a teaching session going on. But I think a lot of the teaching, although some of it is like that, is more like this. So this is an image of Boerhaave. Um, it's created after his death. I don't know anything about this image. I photographed it in the Boerhaave Museum while I was in Leiden this summer. And just went, ooh. Um, so I'm going to talk about it from what it says as a picture. It's a bit art historical. Um, but I'm sure there's... I don't know how much of it is fictitious. But the idea of having the garden here, with the space in here, with the library, and that's kind of pharmacy, it's kind of relating all your bits together. And this cabinet with things in, I'm not quite sure what they are, but I think that's probably quite important. Um, we've got some gentlemen here who look like they've got fancy hats and have collected things from the garden. Because you could take cuttings from these gardens sometimes if you're allowed, or if you were rich enough. Um, this, I think, is probably the gardener who's brought specimens in. And this is Bellhaf teaching with a specimen to his group of students. So there is the, the bringing of things from outside in for teaching, but the relationship with the garden, the library, the book of nature idea, that idea of how all those things connect with the books. I think a lot of that is going on. I think that was with the anatomy idea, wasn't it? That was kind of the body in the books. I think the plants in the books. Because um, libraries always go with botanic gardens. You have the two things together. So the need for a larger garden, um, there's kind of both Glasgow and Edinburgh have physic gardens. They do have spaces. They're seen as too small really early on. They do move around a bit. Um, but in Glasgow, um, they don't get a garden until 1816 that's like a botanic garden that looks a bit like the Edinburgh one. Um, so I think the physic garden is just here right by the college. So it's part of the college. So it's kind of based in the college. Because when they move out later, you have to take your te teaching space with you, I think. Whereas here, you could easily bring plants in or take students outside. Um, but petitioning for a garden in Glasgow starts quite early. William Cullen and Robert Hamilton petitioned the university in 1754, um, stating that Robert Simpson has formally informed society that a noble patron, his grace, the Duke of Argyll, um, would basically give them his plants if they had somewhere to put them. Um, and he also complained the study of botany has been held back by want of a proper gardener, which is why I say they're so important. Um, they say they can't, you know, continue. So I wonder where Cullen gets his plants from. Because the physic garden isn't big enough, which makes me think he's growing plants somewhere else, maybe like Bauhaus, or they're using market gardeners in Glasgow to grow their plants for them. Which is why I'm interested in where these things are being grown. Um, 
1806, Thomas Brown writes a letter to defend the gardener, basically. Um, he describes the physic garden as that plot of barren ground which has dignified the name of botanic garden. It's so very barren that its produce can scarcely be of any advantage to a lecture of botany. He, William Lang the gardener, is therefore under the necessity during the greatest part of the course, both of collecting plants himself in the fields and in neighbouring gardens, and of trusting to the exertions of the gardener. Um, and this idea of botanising, this is William Curtis's, you know, gentleman botanising, basically. But the idea of going out and collecting your plants is obviously part of your teaching as well. You would go out and botanise with the students. Um, but the gardener actually makes his own case, which is quite an unusual letter, I think, in terms of one of these, you know, people that we don't hear much from. Um, in 1807, saying, during the summer when the botanical lectures are going on, the gardener allotted for that department furnishing but a very few specimens for illustrating the science of botany. It is required of me to collect elsewhere whatever plants may be necessary for carrying forward the lectures, for which purpose I have to traverse the country round in search of plants. And that, gentleman, not on a particular occasion, but almost every day of the course. A great part of my time, therefore, which should be devoted to dressing the gardens, so like the fancier gardens and making them look nice, um, is occupied in this manner. Because a certain number of different plants, all in flower, must be had for each lecture. And oftentimes, after I have travelled to a wood or waterside two or three miles from town, I have been disappointed in finding the individual plants wanted, and must again set out some other quarter to find them. And gentlemen, as the number of students last year was upwards of 30, it became necessary for me to provide upwards of 30 specimens of each individual plant demonstrated. And as several hundred genera and species were examined last season, the botany garden not furnishing near 100 in perfect condition, a great proportion of my time must be occupied in this manner. Now he's defending himself. He's gone to trouble for A, not keeping the gardens up, but also flogging things on from possibly college gardens. Um, they describe him as using the gardens as if he's an apothecary, i.e. selling um, plants and medicines, presumably. So it gives us an idea of the number of plants being needed, you know, kind of have the scope of the course. Um, and there are lots of... So the reason like, John Hope's so interesting in Edinburgh is that he not only keeps his own notes on his own lectures, and he keeps like, detailed lists of everything, um, there's also students' accounts of his lectures. There's like, a great set of books in the 1770s recording what his lectures were like. And about a third of it is pure biology of plants. So he's really teaching botany, biology... Um, so here we have John Hope. It's the only image of John Hope we have with the gardener, with the kind of plants. Obviously, checking out plants they might be able to bring in or plants that have just arrived, who knows. But it's this kind of learning through experience, learning with the plant as well. You have to have the actual plant. You have to have it in flower. You have to be able to see it. Um, and one of the things that he talks about at the beginning of his lectures is, I believe gentlemen derive more knowledge from the senses, viz. the taste and smell, than from all books together. I can say this far for myself that I got more knowledge from these in the materia medica than in books. So he starts talking about senses at the beginning, then he does vegetation, classification, and then he says, I will hold up to your view the different things in the garden. We don't have many images, and this is actually done um, in, I think, 1890, imagining what it was like in 1750 in Chelsea Botanic Garden. But, you know, we have some people looking at plants. So who took the course? We have, obviously, have medical students, but also those interested in agricultural rural economy. A list of 1763 has a knight, two ministers, a captain, druggist, advocates, Americans... <laughs> and some noted as infirmary. And sometimes there are people who have gratis tickets. So John Spence of Moffat was recommended by one of the Dr Hunters, who knows which one. Um, so Patchnade also got you free places on courses, which could be an apprentice of theirs that's been sent up. <laughs> Just be through. Um, 
But there are also problems for allowing students into the garden in large numbers. So he talks about um, the last part of the course consists in demonstration. And in this part, I've made some improvement, and in others, I've given it up entirely. Um, for a number walking through the garden, especially in bad weather, I found to be a great injury to it. It is impossible for you to have access to the exotic plants, but by demonstration, yet many of the exotics do not come to such perfection as to admit of demonstration. So he has a problem with like things that you can't bring in, but also number of students milling around... Um, injuring the plants, knocking seeds off. And I think it's the valuable nature of the plants, the fact he has these networks to bring the plants in. He doesn't then want students destroying them. So he actually starts designing things about how um, students can come in one area of the garden but not get to another um, to kind of manage crowd control. There's also, it's not just students, so in 1776, there's a note in Hope's papers of a draft advertisement where he writes, whereas much inconvenience has arisen from the crowds of promiscuous company walking in the Botanic Garden, by which the necessary work has been interrupted and proper distinction of visitors, and he's got of knowledge and curiosity, which he then crosses out, so he has gone a bit far in describing the type of visitors he wants, um, could not be made. On these, on another count, it's become necessary to admit none without an order from the Professor of Botany. By this regulation, it's not meant to render access to the garden difficult. Strangers, the gentlemen of this country, and any person of knowledge or curiosity, upon sending their name to the shops of Mr. Thompson Druggis, head of Nidri's Wind, Mr. Sparky opposite the Tron Church, and Mr. Moncrief Apothecary on the bridge, will receive an order for seeing the garden between the hours of 12 and 3, and during the summer at 6 in the evening, every day, Sunday accepted. So these gardens aren't necessarily private educational things. They kind of have um, extra elements. And I want to quickly talk about um, other forms of teaching. Um, and I was thinking about that image Mike showed yesterday of um, the Hunter's anatomy teaching room with those pictures on the walls. He also has pictures made, and he talks about the scale of them. Um, so he's very good at recording his own practice. He says, in 1776, I hung up four specimens of dried plants, which were pasted to the paper. After finishing lecture one, he showed 15 to 20 more, which were loose in the paper. Um, and then he has desiderata 15 or 20 specimens, two dried in sand and preserved in glass. There's every figure necessary to be shown drawn by Andrew Fife, and of such size it may be seen at any distance in the room, and note of these drawings made out. And he also notes one of the gardeners should keep a register of the students examined. Also talks about gardeners holding up specimens of waking plants to compare with sleeping drawings. These are plants very interesting that make motions with their leaves. So they kind of have the sensitive plants. Um, I think I might have an image maybe of one of those. No. Um, but he's also interested in having images of um, scientific experimentation. So it's very interesting the idea of plants kind of growing back upwards because of you know, where light comes from. This is the a drawing that he's had made of one of Stephen Hale's experiments. This is a bit of metal in a tree showing how the tree has kind of regenerated itself around it. Um, and I think that's to do with how sap and trees work. So it's very much botanical science. So in 1818, Glasgow kind of finally catches up and decides to have a proper botanic garden. In the early plans, there's a lecture theatre. So this area here, which is very much like Hope's Botanic Cottage. The design... It's quite interesting, but not as kind of botanically swirly as hex. Although this looks a bit like when you cut through plant sections, and you have like the fl- kind of the way cells work and things. Um, and there's a shift potato, more of an ornamental approach to botanic gardens. So they talk about compartments for your collections, so your annual biennial and alpine plants, medical plants, the use of lectures, and for sale. They want to make money out of this. Um, plants used in agriculture. 
Um, one specimen of at least the most approved kinds of fruits and trees will be cultivated. And then it says, we're going to group them together without any regard to classification, but so as to produce the most agreeable and ornamental effect in terms of the trees. So they're shifting away from how things should be arranged. Um, but it could be a specific role that Glasgow have. They talk about being for amusement and recreation. They call it a public garden. Um, and it could be to do with the funding. So a lot of the money comes from Thomas Hopkirk of Dalbeath, who's a botanist. He brings his own collection and gives it to the university. It kind of makes... It kind of gets them to get on with it, in a way, I think. They've been talking for a long while about having one. But it's kind of created and run by the Royal Botanic Institute of Glasgow, which is like Dublin, which is the Royal Dublin Society, isn't it, who kind of set up that. And there's an abstract agreement between the proprietors of the Botanic Garden and the faculty of the College of Glasgow. And they contribute a sum of £2,000. And then they agree the Professor of Botany shall deliver at least one course of lectures in each season in the public room erected in the garden and shall have the exclusive right of lecturing there. So they still keep their money and their lecturing power in the garden that goes with it. But it says, it being however understood, that other public bodies of individuals may receive such specimens as can be spared from the garden for lectures elsewhere on terms to be fixed by the General Committee of Management. So some of the plants could go somewhere else. Um, and the gardener belongs to the institution, shall regularly attend the lectures given in the garden, shall supply whatever specimens are needed, um, and help the professor and lecturer. So it's kind of moved on in terms of how these gardens are thought about. And the problem with botanic gardens is that they're part ornamental, because they kind of have to have this other, you know, showy off these new plants we have in, um, and also to get other plants in. They have like a teaching element. They sometimes have. It's, it's, they're a very complex nature of different functions on form. But I think they change quite a lot in this period, um, and I think it's kind of a shift away towards those separation of the sciences out. It's the point where you know botany is becoming a valid um, subject on its own. And I will stop there. <laughs>